This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. One of the questions that drives people as batty as anything else out there goes like this. We as a people are very sympathetic to people who are going through something like what just happened in Houston, in the Houston area, in Texas with the hurricane. And certainly with what looks like Hurricane Irma is shaping up to be, you know, these things are horrible, horrible things. So we don't want to be entirely selfish. We don't. However, these things do have spill-off effects. And one thing that seems to happen, every time there is a natural occurrence, a natural disaster, a hurricane, whatever, within minutes, our gas prices go, go through the roof. Within minutes. We've got gas in storage. We've got tanks of gas here. It seems like we've already got the gas on site, but suddenly that gas that we've already got goes way up in price. But when things start to get repaired... It takes forever, seemingly, for gas prices to go down. Why is this? Well, who better to turn to today than not only a man who is the best at explaining all these financial things, but a man who I'm guessing had his first day of classes today. Marvin Ryder, a professor at the DeGroote School of Business, uh, the guy we turn to for finance and economics and money questions. Uh, why does this happen? Because it seems, and first of all, does it happen or do we just imagine that it happens? Let's start there. Well, I'm going to say you imagine it happens. It really depends upon where these natural disasters hit. So take, for instance, and I'm sorry to do this to you, but Irma that is coming and is going to hit southern Florida it's likely going to have no impact on gasoline prices because there's no refining, there's not really uh, oil that's taken out of the ground in the Florida area. If it has an effect on anything, let's suppose it's just a terrible swath of disaster, you could see orange juice prices go up because we get most of our orange juice from Florida oranges. But it doesn't affect oil. So oil only really has the impact when a storm hits the and we'll call it the, the, the area in the Gulf that goes from Texas through to New Orleans. That little area in there has most of the refining capability of the United States. In this case, when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston area, it shut down 20%, 20% of the U.S. refining capability. And so instantly, American gasoline prices go up. That's the law of supply and demand. You, you take a 20% reduction in the supply, prices have to go up. So let's get to your question. Everyone says the same thing to me. Well, okay, I understand why gasoline prices go up in the Houston area, maybe even Texas, maybe even in the southern United States. But but Marvin, our gasoline here in Canada doesn't come from Houston. Why, why are our prices going up? That doesn't make any sense to me. They refined it. It was sitting in the tank. Why would it go up? And And this is really... The basic question around economics, law of supply and demand, and commodities. Let me just take it away from oil for a second, if I can, Scott. Something you might follow, because I know you have a lot of this, is gold prices. So gold will go up a dollar or two an ounce, down a dollar or two an ounce. No one ever asks me, is that the American gold price or the Canadian gold price? That price is for gold globally, worldwide. Let's suppose I've got Canadian gold and the price of gold goes up $10 an ounce today. I don't have to sell it to you for $10 more, but wouldn't I be kind of silly to do that? If that's the value on the world stage, I would probably price it the way the world wants. And that's what happens with gasoline. This gasoline price is set for most of North America. And when there's a shortage like this, our price goes up because if you didn't, if the Canadian companies kept it lower, 
suddenly you'd have lots of people from the United States buying our gasoline. I don't mean individuals. I mean corporations who would say, well, send me a few tankers down here. I'll take some of that. You're giving me a 10% discount over what I can get. It, it just it doesn't help. So if you have a commodity, you go up when the market says and you go down when the market says. Last thing, and then I'll hand this back to you, you asked the question about the price coming down. Boy, it seems to go up immediately. Well, and that's because you shut down these plants pretty quickly. So facing a disaster like this, uh, uh, knowing the hurricane was coming, they just battened down the hatches. It's the same way we did in Fort McMurray when the fire was hit coming. They just shut down everything and got the workers out of there. And hooray to them, that's the right thing for these companies to do. The problem then is it's not so easy to turn everything right back on. You've got to sort of heat everything up, reconnect everything, double-check that the safety precautions are all there, and it just takes longer to bring that capacity online than it does to shut it down. I still think you're going to see uh, gasoline prices get back to normal by the end of the month. I know there are some doomsayers who, who, who say it's going to take longer than that, but <clears throat> what we're discovering in, in uh, the Houston area is that most of these refineries sustained very minor damage, very minor water uh, flooding in those areas, and they should all be back online. I would even think by the 15th of the month, therefore, prices should be back down by the 21st. Could we affect this? I mean, obviously, we all need to drive our cars. We need to, you know, heat our house. We don't need to heat our houses today, but, I mean, if it was in the winter. Um, but I saw cases down in the States with this hurricane where there were some big box stores or big grocery stores that were gouging people for right. crates of water. And right. they were, uh, through social media, through other things, they were shamed. I think it was 42 bucks for a case of water in one place, and they got ripped. Is it possible with oil for the public to essentially force the hand of the big oil companies to lowering it and to not gouging people because they can? Yeah. So let's start with your water example. You know, Scott, right now in Florida, there's a tremendous run on things because Irma is going to hit probably by Friday. So water is flowing out of the stores. So are canned goods. Uh, you're seeing people top up gasoline, in fact, taking in extra empty containers to fill it up so they'll have gasoline, because when that storm hits, it's just going to shut everything down. Well, as you consume the plywood and the, and the water and these sort of things, the supply in South Florida is getting smaller and smaller, and the law of supply and demand would suggest prices would go up. You can imagine, Scott, that maybe you're trapped in Florida, and, you're, boy, you're just so thirsty, you know, how much for that last bottle of water? Well, if somebody said $5, even though it used to be 50 cents, if you're desperate enough, you're still going to pay it because you need that bottle of water. Now, that's the, that's the economic side of the argument. What you're giving me is the ethical side of the argument that says, well, wait a minute, Marvin. <clears throat> We're a civilized society. We really shouldn't profit on the misfortunes of others. So if, if we've got this sort of a, a, a storm coming, let's keep the prices down. So if I'm running a grocery store, if I'm Home Depot, don't jack up the price of plywood and cash in on this. Keep the price down. And you're right, some people on social media have taken to shaming some retailers who are choosing the short path, the cashing-in path, rather than the more ethical path. Now, take the problem with gasoline, though, is how do you shame Petro-Canada or Esso or Shell? You, could, you can post all these things all you want, but unless you also choose to not buy the gasoline. So, in other words, I'm not paying $20 a bottle for water, and I'm going to shame you until you bring the price down. So I'm not going to pay $1.30 a liter, but oh, I've got to still drive to work and I've still got to take the kids to soccer practice and I still need fuel somewhere. So because the way this system tends to work is that most of the retailers price very similarly to one another, 
other than trying to find the cheapest person and support them, there's probably very little you can do about this. Well, and we do talk about capitalism and supply and demand and all the laws of economics and free market and everything else. One of the things that you see in almost every other industry, though, if I get, now, uh, we have fewer of these because Future Shop has closed, but once upon a th- and they were owned by the same person, so let me use a better example. If, you, if Best Buy comes out with a flyer that says um, TVX is on sale for this amount, usually what you will see is a competitor try to be competitive with that. We have companies within, this in, within the, uh, our area that will say, I will match your price. You find me the right. lowest price, I will match it. There is a competition to earn your business by bringing your price down on certain things so that people will come in. And why do we never see that with gas? Would, it seems to me that there would be one gas, gasoline, a petrol company out there that would say, you know what, if everyone else is going to go nuts and gouge them, I'll bring my price down 10 cents a liter and get all the business. And I'll make my money by having volume rather than simply by having more. Why do we never see that seemingly with gas companies? Well, I have two different answers for you. We actually do see that. Uh, thanks to Costco on the Hamilton mm. Mountain, I have noticed that gasoline stations that are relatively close to it have lower prices than those that are farther away. Costco has decided it doesn't need to make as much money uh, per liter as it sells, so it's reduced its profit margin on those, basically to bring traffic to the store. And so those other gasoline stations nearby feel that they are forced to try to match them. So we do see these price wars break out. And, and I, I can remember, maybe I haven't seen it this year, but a year ago, two years ago, you would suddenly find a gas station on the mountain at 95 cents, and suddenly the next thing you know, somebody else is at 93 cents. But here's the interesting thing about price wars. The winners in price wars are consumers. The losers in price wars are the companies themselves. So I can decide to take 10 cents off a liter, and yes, I'm going to get more volume, but if my profit margin is only 15 cents a liter, I'm selling an awful lot of product and making very little money. And so in the long term, price wars don't work for the corporate sector. They work fine for the consumer, but they don't work for the corporate sector. So again, to give you a different kind of an example, you might remember an airline that started this year, New Leaf, mm-hmm. that started offering the very low, ultra-low cost flights, uh, the assumption is, well, if they can do it for $59 one way to Moncton or you know, $109 one way to Abbotsford, I'm going to take advantage of that. Wouldn't Air Canada and WestJet follow suit? Well, generally speaking, they don't. They may cut their prices ever so slightly. They argue they're offering you more service than what these other people are and the regularity of an airline and the guarantee of an airline, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, they don't necessarily feel obligated. But even if they did, chances are that they would be able to drive New Leaf out of business in a price war. They could withstand the losses longer. The minute New Leaf shut its doors, guess where those prices would go? Right back up to where they were before. Well, and I also wonder, after I asked the question, it also dawned on me, um, is there any loyalty among drivers for a particular station? Because I suppose if you're a Best Buy trying to get people in, again, you're trying to get people to walk in your store, see what you have, and come back again because you liked it. Whereas if I'm Shell and I'm 10 cents lower today, is anyone going to come back to Shell the next day just because you've gone up and now Petro-Canada's lower? You're going to go there. Right. So in marketing, we like to talk about four four tactics or four areas that you can uh, change your strategy on to try to win consumers. Price is one of them. The product itself, 
any promotions that you offer, and the distribution. We certainly know that some gas stations get more business than others because of where they're located. It's, it's on the right side of the road or just, on, just before you get onto this major highway so people stop there and tank up. We know people stop at gasoline stations for the promotions. I collect SO points or I collect air miles from Shell or I collect the Petro-Canada points. And a few people, very few people, give their loyalty based on the product themselves. Oh, Shell gasoline has extra nitrogen. Um, you know, Petro-Canada's got whatever extra extra oxygen. Who knows what has it? But what they've be- effectively done is eliminated the price variable that really no one today is going to drive miles and miles and miles to say .2 cents per liter. It just doesn't make that much sense. So by pricing the same, they've thrown that variable out, and your loyalty, to the extent you have it, is either based on the promotions they offer, the kind of products they sell, or simply the location, that it's convenient, it's the right place for you. That really determines our loyalty to a gasoline station. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate it. Hopefully, um, you know, we should probably actually send you down there to sweet-talk them and say, listen, Hamiltonians need better gas prices, and, you know, Houston shouldn't affect us. We are, we're immune to that, but at least I appreciate you explaining it because it does, uh, it does offer a lot. Thank you for the time. Take care anytime. Uh, it, it, is, it, it is something that drives me nuts. It really does. It drives me. Now, Marvin explained it perfectly well. If you were listening, we all understand perfectly well why what happens happens. But it does drive me nuts that something happens to something in the oil and gas refinery industry and our prices go through the roof immediately, immediately, or pretty close to it. And then the prices, the time it takes to come down seems to be a lot longer. And again, what drives me nuts about it, and I'm sure what drives some of you nuts about it, is not that we don't understand the economics of supply and demand. We do. It's not that we don't understand that refineries have been damaged and all these things. We do. It's that with the exception of a place, as he describes, like Costco, throughout most of the city, there doesn't seem to be any effort to really operate like a free market to really compete with your competitor. What are they going to shave off a 10th of a cent? And you as he said, you're going to go, you're going to go out of your way for a 10th of a cent. No, but in almost every other industry that I can think of, there is real effort to lure you in. I don't see that very often anyway. I mean, occasionally you get a gas price war, but it just doesn't seem that that same intent is there to be the lowest price to beat your competitor. Let's just all hang around the same. Nobody rock the boat. Nah, we'll all get by. That's what drives me nuts about this. Everywhere else is competing. I don't get that sense from the gas companies. I don't feel like there's any competition. It's. I'm not saying it's collusion. I'm saying it's just... There's no effort to try and beat the other guy. It's just, let's all just be the same. And based on where we are, people will come in. And that, that's, that seems like the opposite of what the free market is supposed to be. The free market should benefit the companies, and it does, but it should also benefit the consumer through competition. I don't get the sense it does that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I'm sure it's as old as the game. I mean, I'm sure that on the very first day that Gronk the caveman picked up a club and bonked the caveman through a ball or a rock at him, 
somebody in the outfield was saying, hey, I know what he's going to throw. I mean, this goes way, way back. But modern technology being what it is, the Boston Red Sox today, according to the New York Times, the Boston Red Sox have admitted that they had a guy, a trainer, somebody out in the outfield where they could see what signs the catcher was putting down. Now, I assume everybody knows how this works with baseball, but the pitcher is looking at the catcher. The catcher is flashing signs with fingers between his leg, which say you're going to throw fastball, curveball, slider, whatever. It is highly advantageous to a batter to know what kind of pitch is coming especially if he knows it's a fastball. Everybody in the major leagues can hit a fastball. If you know a fastball is coming, you are way, way, way ahead of the game. So the Red Sox, according to the New York Times, had a trainer in the outfield who was spotting the catcher's signal and somehow rapidly communicating this to someone in the dugout who had an Apple phone, an Apple watch, pardon me, an Apple watch, And this was then able to be communicated to the batter somehow, usually, I guess, by when they had a runner on second base, because now the batter is looking out towards the pitcher. He can look just past him. There's one of his teammates on second base who makes some sort of signal. Anyway, this was happening against the New York Yankees. Of course, they're arch rivals. The Yankees complained. You go back and look at the numbers. The Red Sox did very well in those situations where they had a runner on second base, where these signs were apparently being stolen. And now the commissioner of Major League Baseball is looking at this, trying to figure out what to do about it. Let me bring in my buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Um, You know, Bubba, I know this has been going on forever. This is a new twist to be using this kind of modern technology to steal signs. If nothing else, before we criticize or critique or anything. I guess in the one hand, we have to kind of give a nod to Boston for being this creative. Well, I can't believe they're the only ones doing it, uh, Scott. I'm sure they're probably not. You talked about the fact that, you know, um, this has been going on for years. This goes on in all sports. I mean, there's an element of, of, of deception, and if you want to call it sign stealing, I mean, who, who are we fooling here? I mean, and, and if anyone that's going to play a competitive sport is going to look to gain an advantage. If you ain't cheating, you you're ain't trying. trying. Yep. And, and you're, here's a situation where modern technology has given this team an ability to, to try and do something. And now, you know, the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees, who have been enemies, mortal combat, head-to-head, hating each other since, what, like 1903? I mean, this, this is just a new chapter to this. But, I mean, this is laughable in some ways because this, I mean, remember when the Chicago White Sox complained to the Blue Jays that Roger Center was rigged? I mean, do you remember when the late Don Matthews, the head coach of the Montreal Alouettes, was, was uh, you know, blamed of stealing signals and he showed up to Ivor Wynn. Spying, yeah. Everyone was wearing spy glasses. I mean, this, this is so, it, it's almost, it, it's, it's bordering on childish. Okay, so and, let me, and, but if that's the case, why then, if everybody does it, and if it's childish, and if it's just part of the game, why do teams that have this happen to them still get so bent out of shape? Because honestly, like if I'm, if I accuse you of cheating, but I'm cheating at the same time, it becomes difficult for me to work up too much of a you know, spit and vinegar, because I know, hey, I, I'm just one bad thing away from being caught myself. There's a great hypocrisy. How is it that they still get so upset if everyone's doing it equally? Well, because they got caught. 
right? And, and that's the thing, because everyone steals, and it's only a big deal until you get caught or someone gets sloppy. And as I said, or you add in the extra element of the fact that it's the Red Sox and Yankees, um, and, and apparently, from what I'm hearing, Boston is now filed back a complaint to Major League Baseball to the, about the Yankees using their Yes Network uh, as cameras, uh, as camera, that they're watching the Yes Network cameras, extra cameras, to steal signs while they're in the dugout when they're at Yankee Stadium. Because apparently this operation only happens when they're at Fenway. And yes, what, yeah. what, got, what got blamed here. And odd enough to me that this all gets announced and revealed and, and, and uh, reported by the New York Times. It just so happens that Commissioner Rob Manfred just happens to be in Boston today. Like, this is it's so silly. It is... Um... It is puzzling to me, first of all, as I say, the first thing that's puzzling to me about this is this seems, when I when I read this, and the reason I said off the top that I had to read this two or three times, I was trying to figure out, there is a, there is a gap of, what are we going to say, five seconds between the time the, ump, the catcher gives his sign and the pitcher throws his pitch, maybe? There's an awful lot going on in that time to be able for the batter to actually get information on where the pitch is coming. But when you look at the numbers, clearly it seems to have had an effect at least a few times. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of amazed, first of all, that this thing could actually be pulled off. It seems very complicated to be able, boom, 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 to get your guy to know what's coming. But I think, I think what they're doing here, Scott, is, is at least the way I read it and the way it, it, it makes sense to me, is it, it's not actual instant uh, uh, cheating as this pitch, a curveball's coming. Uh, it, it's a matter of tracking what, a, what particular pitches do, and then as that next batter comes up, you have a good outlay of what may, come, what may be coming, what may not be coming, how these pitch, pitchers are going, to try, are, are going to pitch you, and they continue to work that way. And, of course, the training, the Boston training staff are in on it as well, too. I mean that's gotten that's been you know discovered as well too. I mean, and the funny thing to me is that Boston have owned up to us, owned up to this. They've admitted to it. Um, and but in terms of instant, you know, this is coming, that's coming. Yeah, you're right. There's too much going on. But I I think you, what you do get is a good understanding of what pitchers are going to do in certain situations against certain batters. Do you have a problem? with sign stealing in general. Forget the technology part and the fact that it's at home. If you have a guy on second base, if you have a base runner on second, and he can peer in and see and figure out and ha- crack the code of what the catcher is putting down, do you have a problem with him relaying a sign to his, to his batter? Because I don't. Not That I don't have no. a problem with. No, I, I, don't, I don't agree with the electronic use of it because then I think it takes cheating to a whole new level. Yes, but if right? it's just a guy but, figuring but, it out? Yeah, but if, if guys are figuring out stuff or, I mean, hey, and you're, you're a big fan of baseball. This isn't rocket science, right? This is a, a catcher going a one, two, three, inside, outside, up high with his fingers, right? This isn't, this isn't some Morse code that we're dealing with here, right? And eventually, you can talk to a catcher. And let's not forget, too, sometimes the pitchers or the catchers and pitchers may have, you know, um, 
played for each other's team, right? Or know the manager or whatever the case is. So this isn't really all that hard to figure out in many cases, right? Because there's only so much a catcher can do to make a signal to a Well, but you can hide it. And this is the part that I really, that blows me away. This is the part that I don't understand because... Let's say that you, the example you just gave. So Bubba O'Neill got traded from the Red Sox to the Yankees, and now Bubba's standing at second, so he knows what the signs are. Well, one of the ways that the catcher gives his signs, or can do it, is that when he starts putting his fingers down, let's say the first number he puts down might be which number you're then looking for. So let's say he goes two, three, four, f- two. The first one, two, means not the next one, which is the three. That's not it. That's not the sign you're looking for. It's the one after that, which would be the four, which is the pitch. You can, and, but you could change this up in so many different ways that the guy on second, if you are doing this right, should never be able to put this all together and probably should never be able to crack your code. So I, I, I don't even understand in the major leagues how this thing gets figured out, I'll be honest, because these guys have signs for everything, and it should be so easy to hide these and yet here you are with, with teams bent completely out of shape because of this. You're totally right that it should be so easy to, to mask the sign stealing in that manner. But come on, these are human beings. We all get lazy, right? So I'm sure a lot of these times uh, with particular catchers, especially when it's a backup catcher coming in a game, probably gets a little lazy. The signs may be somewhat more basic than we would like to believe that they actually are. I mean, they're figuring this out, so it can't. It really can't be that difficult in baseball, because all the catchers know how it works. The pitchers certainly know how it works, and after observing enough, like you said, especially when you're hanging around second base, it, there has to be. It, it, I, be, I believe this is easier than a lot of people are giving it credit for, and I, and that and that Boston came up with some supersonic way <laughs> using electronics. To actually figure it out, and in some ways, good on them. I, I'm frankly the only thing I'm shocked about, really, out of this whole thing is that Boston hasn't yet today been able to swing some sort of sponsorship deal with Apple, because this seems like, <laughs> look, we can crack the code between the time the catcher puts his signs down and the time you swing the bat only with Apple. Um, so the biggest issue here seems to be from the Yankees and from everyone else's perspective, and quite frankly from Major League Baseball, which has rules, is you can try and steal signs all you want. You can't use electronic devices in the dugout to make that happen. So it appears that quite clearly they have broken that, and by the New York Times story, it seems they've admitted to that. Yes, they have. So what is an appropriate penalty then because the Yankees are saying look they're two and a half games in front of us going into tonight's action uh take this away we might be tied with them we might be in the lead what if you're Rob Manfred if you're the commissioner of Major League Baseball and the part that makes this very tricky is it's not like you're dealing with New York and some franchise in the hinterland that's 400 games out and that the fans don't care you are dealing with two teams that if you're the commissioner no matter what you do you are going to have massive fan bases dumping on your head regardless. So what uh, I, is... I, I, really? Really? Oh, yeah, because I, look, I, if I you don't penalize the Red Sox, this. if you I, don't penalize the Red Sox, Yankee fans are going to go nuts at you. you and if you, you penalize can, the Red Sox... What can you do other than slap them with a, a, a half-million-dollar fine? You can't dock them games. You can't take away games for, for that have already been played. Flip them and, in the standings. Well, I'm going to flip your places in the standings. New York, <laughs> you're now in front by two and a half. 
Well, then that means, I mean, the Blue Jays are 10-3 and three against them this year. So does that mean the Blue Jays get 10 wins? Like, what are you going to do? Sure, why not? <laughs> you can't, you can't do this. It's completely asinine. I think the, the 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 fans are actually giggling at this. This just, I mean, again, it's amplified because it's the Red Sox and Yankees more so the chief franchises, quite honestly, other than the Dodgers and in in Major League Baseball. So why have a rule then? Like, and I'm, I'm I know you're saying what you're saying about the fans giggling, and I I don't disagree with you entirely. So why have a rule then? Like, my my point is on this is either enforce the rule in some significant way and my idea of a significant way is in major league baseball when you have what is it a 45 round draft no picks for the first five rounds next year that's interesting yeah all right and that and you know what that may come into play but you got to do something otherwise I, what's the point of having the rule at all well i think you're you're there i mean uh, because like i said i think we both agree that we we know and i think major league baseball knows that this stuff goes on and has been going on for a hundred years now to protect the somewhat integrity of of the game, you do need to penalize the teams. And I think, uh, you know, a half million, million dollar fine, which is really not that much for these two teams, but it's a good enough, heavy enough um, sort of slap on the wrist to say, look, don't do this again, or at least don't get caught being so stupid, <laughs> right? Well, you're, and, now, and, you're the commissioner saying your penalty is don't get caught? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> just don't get caught, all right? I mean, I think I think behind the scenes, right? They're, they're <laughs> wink, wink, not, I mean, because apparently the reports are saying that, you know, Farrell had no idea of what was going on. Uh, Dombrowski, the general manager, had no idea of what was going on. I mean, I, I believe the general manager might not know, but how John Farrell doesn't know this is going on is just, you know, it's crazy. I mean, and, and, and you know what, and to, to make this a, a kind of a macro decision, what's going on in Boston? You, you know, you've got the deflate gate that got worked in for, what, two years of debate. Now you've got this uh, Apple watch gate, if you whatever you want to call it. <laughs> what is going on in Boston? Well... Sadly, we're out of time, but I will point out that in the third inning, as of right now against the Blue Jays, Boston has yet to score a run. Dun-dun-dun! Proof that they cannot do anything without Apple iWatches. If they get shut out, then it's really, it really makes sense. Oh, if they get shut out, this could be actual proof that they would not have won a single game this season if not for Apple WatchGate. <laughs> Or something. Oh. At least the New York papers will have something to talk about for the next little while on their talk shows. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Lovely. <laughs> uh, you can catch him uh, tonight at 11 o'clock on CHCH, as always, sir. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure, Scott. I would, um, next time you watch a baseball game, see if you can crack the code when you watch the catcher. See how long it takes you to figure out. And I think it'll take you a long, long, long time, unless... They're not doing it right. Because it shouldn't be easy. And it's easy not to make it easy. So if they're making it easy, shame on them as well. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Story in the Globe and Mail today, which I read, and I got to be honest, I found it fascinating because it seems on first blush, on first read to be, I don't know what the word is, it doesn't sit right with someone who grew up in school a long time ago. And I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that this would never have happened, I don't think. What it is is some students in Caledon are going to be able at the end of their semester to negotiate with their teacher for their final grade. It's a pilot project to see how this is going to work. And the idea, it seems, behind this 
is that some in education believe there's too much focus on marks, too much focus on achieving marks rather than on learning. That you learn what you need to learn to pass or do well on a test, but the second that test is over, you have forgotten that and therefore you haven't really learned anything you've just achieved. And so if perhaps at the end of this time we can say, hey, we got a different way and you can negotiate by showing that you know you have learned more, you can have a higher mark. Well, Dr. Don Klinger is an acting associate dean of education at Queen's University. He is the past president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Education. He joins me now. Dr. Klinger, thanks for doing this today. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm very well. My, I, I will say my initial reaction when I read this story, and I read it a couple times to make sure I understood it, my initial reaction was this is maybe pushing the bounds into a little bit of silliness, but I'm wondering if someone who's in education thinks that I'm being perhaps a little too flippant with this. Well, I, I think it'd be fair to you. I, it's not about being flippant. It certainly is something that... Uh, at first glance, would shock somebody. <laughs> well, it, it seems very, very far off the accepted path of what's been the way we grade students for forever. Yeah, but let's, let's look at two things. I mean, first, uh, the, the rationale for the decision is sound. I mean, at one level, uh, feedback has been shown to be effective in supporting learning. We know that, especially if it's high quality in terms of providing direction and guidance. Uh, uh, the portfolios are certainly a valuable learning and assessment tool. Uh, that's been shown to work. And the constant focus for letter grades has certainly been shown to impact negative learning. So, you know, from that point of view, you know, you could see why such a process could be an argument they make. Uh, you know, to give you an example, you know, just look at your own job performance reviews. You know, lots of organizations use a process in which the performance review is negotiated, a negotiated discussion and dialogue between the manager and the employee. That happens in the professional world, but, you know, as I say that, you know, you can think of some problems with the comparison I'm making here and just how some of those challenges implementation they're probably going to have. Well, okay, so um, let me go back. And again, it has been a few years. I I grant that. But when I was in high school and my teachers are very glad they don't have to deal with me anymore, they're glad I'm gone and they got me out of there. But I got, I believe, the marks in high school that I deserved. I don't believe that I should have had a different mark or that I should have been able to walk into my teacher and say, you know what, uh, based on my participation, I, I think it's better. I, I, I put the effort into my tests, I put the effort into my projects, into my essays that I decided to put in and my marks reflected that. So again, why would this be a better method to say, yes, okay, I did X in my tests and my reports and everything else, but I still think I deserve more than that because. Why is that better? Yeah, so let's, let's take away from the mark a little bit, but just imagine if you could have, rather than just getting that mark, at the same time you could have had a discussion with your teacher and say, okay, so what led to my mark? Well, this is an area I have some struggles with in my learning. This is a part where I'm very good at it. Uh, so that piece would actually help your learning and you know may have helped you to choose your future directions. And who knows, today you might be... Uh, a television announcer. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I would have had to change my entire face for that to happen. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so is there then, see, the idea when I hear this and when I hear you explain that and the possibilities of that seems to be 
the idea that we are just going to say to students, and these are at this point anyway, I understand younger students, grade nine, maybe grade 10, that yeah. we're going to say, hey, listen, just come in. And if you're smooth enough to talk your teacher into a higher mark, you're going to get it. And again, I'm looking at this thinking, well, you know what, in a true negotiation, and you know this as well as everyone listening, in a true negotiation, there are positive and negative opportunities. So if a student, if you're going to have a student who can walk in and say, I would like to negotiate my my grade, to me, there should also be the option for the teacher to say, you know what, you got 78% based on your tests and your reports, but based on your participation, I'm docking you 10%. The problem is I can't imagine a scenario in which any teacher will take marks away from a student. This will only be to the benefit of the student. And that to me doesn't seem like it. If it's, if you can get marks for your participation or for understanding, why should you not lose marks if you can't demonstrate that? Yes. And I think, I mean, you're certainly hitting one of the challenges there. I mean, underlying what you're talking about is I think one of the challenges in that is you've got to make sure that, you know, even in negotiations, you have to have the same goal. Right. So if the teacher and the student have a different goal, you've got a problem. So imagine a situation where the student wants to use this dialogue. You know, and I talk about dialogue rather than negotiations. I think it's a better word. Okay. But, you know, they're, they're using this dialogue to discuss the student's learning and progress. You know, and then the teacher and the student, they're more worried about, are my marks good enough to get me into university or to meet my family expectations? You know, if you have those competing goals, everything you're talking about, it's no longer a dialogue. It is now a, you know, how can I win? this negotiation. And that's where I think that one of the challenges comes in. You're quite right. Do you foresee or could you foresee any circumstance, really, almost in every case, could you foresee almost any circumstance in which a, t- a, a kid coming in to talk to his teacher doesn't get a bump in his grade? Because, there, again, the reason I ask this is when you have... A, a solid barometer, test scores, you can then send that report card home to the parent and say, Johnny got this, therefore this is his grade. If Johnny comes in as part of this dialogue and has 75 on his test and you don't bump it up, you're now the bad guy and you know you're going to have to deal with the parents who now are saying, well, why didn't he get more? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, one thing I'll, I'll caution everybody on is this notion that tests are the, the solid barometer I think is a is something we have to be careful of. They are they are certainly a measure, but you know there's a long way to go before they're a perfect measure. But here's the situation. This, again, another one of the challenges. Uh, we've got lots of research that shows that uh, our lowest achieving or the people with the lowest skills tend to overestimate their skills and their abilities. And the ones with the highest abilities are often the ones that are going to underestimate underestimate their achievement. So. I can imagine a scenario where the highest achieving students, some of them, the teacher comes in, well, I don't think you're quite doing as well as you think. They would actually would agree with that response and, and take the lower mark, whereas our lowest achieving students would probably argue quite strongly, oh, no, I'm better than that. So, in fact, you could have this impact where our, some of our students, based on their ability to negotiate, as you're, as you're saying, get better marks, not on skills at all, but on something else entirely. See, I think the the one thing we could learn out of this is the kids who are the good negotiators should be immediately directed into business school and nothing else. If you can talk your teacher into a 10% bump, you are immediately entered into a university that will take your business course. But but speaking of university, how will universities, let's say this was this goes beyond, let's say this pilot project gets accepted and it goes beyond a class yeah. or a grade. 
How then do universities sort out who to take and who not to take? Because right now, at least they have a semi-rigid set of marks and they know which schools tend, they can bump based on school ease or not ease, but how are they going to sort through then who should get into courses and who shouldn't? Yes, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I always worry about systems where we, we use our education system to use it as a, and I work in the university, but I don't want univer- the public school system to whole sole focus to be on university entrance. I think we have to remember the purpose of education is much broader than that. You know, and, and developing some of those negotiation skills, as you're calling, are important, but also just understanding of our own learning. I mean, this is really what the goal for this project is, is how do we help students really dig deeper into what their learning is and understand it better? So, you know, if we can keep that goal in place, I'm not worried about the universities nearly as much. My biggest worry is how does a school like this create a culture, a learning culture, a quote-unquote learning culture for this to happen properly? Because without that, you're going to get all kinds of other problems, and then that will be issues, will be issues down the road with that. You mentioned, we both mentioned tests uh, a, a few moments ago. Are tests now considered not a good measuring stick of success academically? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think tests certainly have some value. I think it depends on the design of the test. And I mean, this is certainly my area of research. It depends on the purpose and the design of the test. You know, I, they, they, they have different purposes. It's like different radio programs have different purposes. Tests are the same thing. They, some are better at measuring achievement. Others are better at measuring systems. Uh, so I, I, I don't want to just blame tests. I just think there's other things that tests can't measure as well as at this time in the areas around critical thinking, creativity. Certainly we, we struggle with those in tests. Uh, these 21st century learning skills people talk about, very difficult to measure in, in some sort of testing system right now. That's a really interesting point because it seems as though uh, the, I'm trying to think of what the right word here, the goal or the, the, the way we judge education now is moving a little bit. And, and I'm wondering if, I mean, this seems like a way to modernize it. I guess as again, as I look at this, I wonder to modernize it to what? Like, do we have do we have evidence that there are a lot of great students out there who are just not good at tests or not good at writing papers, and therefore are being held out of programs in university or careers that they really should be in, or is that a very small number that just can't do that? And by and large, the system reason it really works pretty well altogether, and we're never going to be able to make it perfect. Yeah, Scott, I think you've hit it. Uh bang on the head there, you know, uh, with that. I think there is a small number that do struggle with those kinds of, of test writing skills, but learning skills and demonstrating those in formal types of exams. It is a small number. They're there. There's no doubt. But I, I would agree that for the most part, the system works well. But, you know, the question we have to think about is, is it, is it going to work well enough in the next 10, 15 years? I mean, our, there's no doubt that our work world is changing, our societies are changing, and that does require different skill sets inclusive of, that, of achievement, but you must have others as well. And I think these are the kinds of things where the self-reflection is, is going to be critical going forward. I am sure that one of the comments that is going to be made, I won't make it myself, but I guarantee you that this is going to be said is that this is just further evidence that we have to appease 
millennials, and that's who we're talking about right now. We have to appease millennials who can't deal with their self-esteem being hurt by a lower grade. And therefore, we have to give them the opportunity to feel good about themselves and get what they want. What would you say to that? Well, you know, I, you know, I certainly heard the criticism of millennials, and you know, there are times that it may be true. But in this case, to be fair to millennials, the ideas we're talking about here aren't actually as new as we think. Uh, there are certainly efforts in British Columbia in the 90s, in the 80s, to do similar things like this. More often at the elementary school, Alberta's looked at this. So this is not a completely new idea. I think the challenge is as we go forward, what does it look like? I think that's where uh, it's a much, it's a newer idea there. It's going to take some experimentation. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to put this one on the millennials. I'm sure though you read, what was it, about two or three weeks ago, there was a story at the University of Georgia where a professor had said, you can come and tell me what mark you get, and that will be your mark, no questions asked. And, and that got immediately shot down by the university. Is this vastly different from that, or is this in the same spectrum, though? Oh, this, this, is, this is much different than that. I mean, I, I went to school probably long before you did, and, uh, you know, I, I was able to give myself one of, a mark in one of my fourth-year classes. <laughs> so, you know, and that was in the, that was in the 80s. <laughs> Um, no, this is very different because really what the focus is here, and maybe that professor is doing the same, but the idea here is that this is a dialogue to really talk about your learning and, and how, how that's coming along. And, you know, to, to demonstrate that you understand this, something that I may have missed in the test I've given you. So it's not about attendance. It's not about being a good talker. It's really about show me the evidence that, you, that the mark I've given you or the mark that you receiving or we think you're going to get is the one that's most reflective of what you're doing. So would the idea then be that the dialogue or negotiation, whichever word you want to use, if it's done right, okay, so I sit down with you, you're my teacher, I'm finishing the the grade and I've got a 75 and I say, look, I actually understand this. Ask me some questions and see if I get it. And if I do, then bump me up by a bit because I've shown that I have grasped what you're talking about, even though I may not have done as well on the test. Is that ideally what this would be? Well, so that, that would take a long time to do. And that's one of the challenges with this idea, this whole process as well, is I'm worried about the time it would take in a classroom. The kind of questions I would ask as a teacher of you is uh, more around the idea, tell me about uh, the skills that you've got that you think I've missed. Uh, why, you know, show me based on our, our learning achievement charts and our criteria that I've misunderstood or I've misrepresented your learning or your learning hasn't been demonstrated fully. So you give me the evidence as opposed to me asking you questions. Hmm. So I'm looking for probably a broader discussion than, you know, do you know the answer to this question? The one thing beyond everything else that I will say that immediately came to mind when I heard this as the giant flare guns shooting into the air, <laughs> caution, light, red lights flashing, everything is. You and, saw that sound like too, did you? Uh, yeah. Is this. The, the biggest problem is, and I've seen this, I've coached enough minor sports, hockey and soccer and baseball. Yeah. If now we open the door for Johnny or Jane or whomever else to be able to change their grade. The teachers, in my mind, are in an an incredibly difficult spot because there are enough crazy parents out there who will come in demanding 
that those grades be changed. And if the and it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the teacher to hold their ground if that te- if that parent starts going to the principal and on and on and on. Whereas a solid mark, you can say that's the mark. I think this is going to be very difficult when parents start beating down the door to say my kid gets a higher grade for the teacher to stand there. Sure, and I and and, and again, I think you've hit to one of the the issues around this notion of culture and the time to establish uh, this process in a, in a learning culture that would support that, the pre-planning communication, you know, you to build the trust. I, I worry about that as well. And it will take time. But again, the user coaching example, you know, I, I coach at a high level as well. And, you know, the notion of coaching has changed over the years too. And so there's, there's room for this, but it, it won't happen overnight. And until everybody's on board with it, you're going to get exactly the kinds of concerns you're, you're, you're talking about. Is everybody, honestly, is everybody who does what you do and is in the, ent- in the education world, will everybody be watching this? This seems like one of those things that is going to be a real focal point pilot project to see how this goes. Uh, I, I'm not sure. There's, there's lots of these kinds of uh, experiments going on, if you want to call them that, uh, efforts to try to find ways that what I often call the magic bullet uh, for, for learning. Uh, we haven't found them yet, so... You know, we're, we're, we're watching and we're observing. Uh, in my field, it's certainly an assessment and measurement. I, I'm intrigued by it. Uh, I certainly have cautions, but that's just the way I am as a researcher, and most of us are. <laughs> Dr. Don Klinger, the uh, Acting Associate Dean of Education at Queen's, uh, past president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Education. Uh, great job, tonight. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for the insight. Hey, thanks, Scott. Have a great evening. You too. That, is, um, that to me, is one of the fascinating conundrums that is going to be faced here because this sounds like it's an an interesting idea to try and there may be some as he explained there may be some benefit to this because some kid that actually maybe the kid did grasp something better maybe it's it's maybe there's a reason why his or her grade should be a little bit higher but i'm not pointing fingers at anyone listening but my goodness, I if you've been out there, you know the parents exist out there, and there will be such pressure on teachers to up the marks. And I can't see a single scenario under which a teacher will lower a mark. So this then becomes, it, it has the potential, in my mind, to become a false thing. Because if a teacher suddenly is under huge pressure by parents and by administration and by students and by everyone else, how long do you think some of those teachers are going to stand their ground? No, no. Johnny got a 75. He deserved a 75. 75 is what he's going to get. I am not changing that on the report card. All right. Now you do that with five or six parents, but you've changed it up for 10 or 12 others. How long do you think that teacher is going to hold his or her ground before that teacher finally says, you know what, screw it. I just, I can't deal with the hassles. You want an 85? Fine, you got an 85. I'm going home. I'm tired of this fighting over the, this is where the problem for me, this is where the risk comes in. It's not that there can't be, in my mind, a discussion that would suggest that, you know what, maybe I did miss something in Johnny or Jane or whomever's 
work. Maybe, you know what? Yeah, okay, I can see that you probably learn more than I thought or you can apply it. I will give you a little bump. It's the outside stuff. If they could do this while guaranteeing that there will be no pressure from outside, I would be a little more inclined to think this is this is worth giving a good look at. I just think this is going to be which parents and which students can be the most persuasive and the loudest and the most on the teacher. And when you've got university places online, you're telling me that if you have a kid who needs to get an 82 to get into the course and the program they want, and they've got an 79, you're telling me that mom and dad aren't marching, most mom and dads, Mums and dads, you're telling me they're not marching down to the school to push every lever and pull every string they can to get that grade up. And, you know, there are teachers, and good for them, there are teachers who will say, you know what, okay, you need 1% to get into your program and you're that close, I can do that for you. And you want to know something? That's always existed. That's always existed. I'm talking about the one where you need 5% or 6%. And then what? If you, if you, teacher X, if you don't give my kid that 85, I know he only got a 78, but if you, you're the only thing holding him back from going to law school, you and you alone will be responsible for my kid not getting into law school. How many teachers are going to stand up to parents and hold their ground? And even if they do it once, do you think they want to do it with parent after parent after parent after parent? So find me a system where you can do this, where you're not having to be under the gun, and let's try it. I just think that you're going to run into some huge problems with the idea of students and or parents being able to negotiate grades. That, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe we've moved into a new gentler age where all parents are docile and simply want the best for everyone where we will hold hands, gather around the campfire of life, sing kumbaya with the teacher, accept gleefully whatever grade they give us and say, geez, you know, he's not getting into law school, but thank you so much for your efforts. Yeah, right. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.